When you read the Gospels, you might find, like I do, you might notice that Jesus is often surprising in his interactions with people. I mean, when you expect him to be harsh, he's usually soft. When you expect him to be soft, he's usually harsh. When you expect him to be welcoming, he's usually off-putting. When you expect him to be off-putting, he's usually welcoming. Like Jesus is walking down the street and he passes a street corner and there's some prostitutes. And you think, well, Jesus is going to tell them what. And Jesus says, hey, ladies, would you like some lunch? I want to tell you about the kingdom of God. Or he passes by some tax collectors. And we say, oh, man, Jesus is going to get after them, stealing money and giving it to the Romans. And Jesus says, hey, have you heard about this kingdom of God stuff? I want to tell you about it. Lepers come around and Jesus touches them and heals them. And then come some religious leaders. And you think, well, Jesus is going to be really nice to those people. Oh, no, he's very harsh to those people. The big power players, you think, oh, he's going to suck up to them and try to get some influence. But no, he's harsh on them. And even in our gospel reading today, we see some eager followers of Jesus to whom he's off-putting and maybe a bit harsh. As you read the second part of our gospel reading today, Three men come to Jesus, and Jesus is rather harsh to them. I don't think Jesus would make a very good church planter. As it is, he turns out to be a church scatterer rather than a planter. Um, this isn't what the church growth people suggest you do. You know, I don't, I don't know. So if you make an appointment with Father Alex, and you say, I'd like to become a member of the church, and Father Alex says, I don't know. I mean, once you join, probably going to end up on the vestry sometime. <laughs> then probably going to make you junior warden, and there's the rest of your life. <laughs> you, better, you better think hard about this. It's really not a good way to grow a church. But Jesus here isn't growing a church. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's teaching us some very important things to know about entering into the kingdom of God. Well, three men come to Jesus. The first thing to notice about this passage has to do with the old location, location, location thing. This is not some story that came floating down out of a cloud and just sits there on the screen and we read it, but there's a whole context to the story. Notice that, that they're going along the road. There's a group of Jesus' followers. Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem for Passover. And there's a group of Jesus' father, followers. Thomas is one of them, and he says, let's go to Jerusalem with him, and we'll die with him there. And they decide they're going to go along with Jesus to Jerusalem to be there for the Passover. It's a long walk from Galilee in the north of Israel to, the, to Judea, where Jerusalem is in the south of Israel. And it's longer than it needs to be because the typical pattern is to leave Galilee, cross the Jordan River over into Syria, and then follow the Jordan River down until you get to Judea, and then cross over again and walk to Jerusalem. It's a long way. In fact, to the Galileans, Jerusalem is a foreign country. I almost mean that literally. If you, if you notice at, at Pentecost, a bunch of foreigners are there, and they say, we hear these Galileans speaking in our language. And there are Arabians and Libyans and Judeans, people in Jerusalem who say, we hear these people speaking our language. They're so far apart, they had regional dialects that were very, very different. 
You might remember Peter being spotted for his dialect at one point. But it's a longer trip than needs to be done because they make that long trip over so they don't go through the middle part, Samaria, where the Samaritans live because the Jewish people want nothing to do with the Samaritans. A couple of months ago, I taught a Wednesday night class on um, the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it became apparent to everybody, even me as I was teaching, that, um, that the, the picture of the, of the Jewish-Samaritan relationship that I'd grown up with just didn't quite fit the facts. Um, I always kind of pictured the Samaritans as these kind of oppressed people, and, and when they were around Jewish people, they were like huddled down, huddled masses, yearning to be breathed free and, 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 and trying to, to avoid them. Um, that's not the picture we get from the New Testament if you read it very carefully and looking at the historical uh, background here. At one point, apparently, they, uh, they cross back over and try to stay in a Samaritan town, and the Samaritans say no. And we know why. They say, you're going to Jerusalem. If you were just passing through on a business trip, we'd be happy to take your money and rent you a motel room. But if you're going to the Jerusalem, that's where the temple is. We don't want anything to do with you. The Samaritans gave as good as they got. Let me tell you, the feeling was mutual. The Samaritans, when they met Jewish people, said, well, they say exactly what the Samaritan woman at the well said to Jesus. They say, well, you worship at Jerusalem, but we, we've got the tabernacle. We've got the tabernacle in Shechem. That's where we worship because we keep the law. The only Bible the Samaritans recognized were the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. They said, the rest of your Bible got you all in trouble. You worship at the temple. That lot of good it did you, didn't it? What did God do to you? Sent the Babylonians, destroyed the temple, and carried you off to captivity. You got all those psalms in your Bible, the Samaritans say to the Jews. Thinking about worshiping at the temple? Why would you want to do that? That's what caused the problem in the first place. We don't read those prophets. You didn't pay attention to it either. You don't see anything in the law of Moses about temples. You read about a tabernacle. And we're the per- we follow the pure law. We have a tabernacle. It's a very different picture than I had growing up of of, of, the, of the Samaritans and their interaction with the Jewish people. But here we see in the story the Samaritans say, no, not if you're going to the temple. We want nothing to do with you if you're going to the temple. But this group, this group of people, they've already left their homes in Galilee to make this journey with Jesus. These are Jesus' followers. At least literally, they're following him to Jerusalem. They've signed on enough to the trip to Jerusalem. How many are, is this group? It's fairly large. There's at least the 12 disciples. As we'll be reading in the gospel, Jesus selects 72 of the others to send out. So there's at least 84. At one point, Paul says that Jesus appeared to 500 of his disciples. Maybe maybe there were 500. I don't know. But at least 84 who decided, we're going to sign up for this trip. We believe what Jesus is teaching. We're going to go to Jerusalem with him. They've made the decision to, to follow Jesus, at least as far as they see on this trip. But then three men come to Jesus. And these are men who've picked up on something, that this is more than just a few days trip to Jerusalem, but that following Jesus is going to be longer, it's going to be a lifelong commitment. And three men come to Jesus. Notice that they're very different men. Well, the last two seem pretty similar, but the first man, 
is very different than the other two men. The first man comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. He doesn't say, I'll follow you the rest of the way to Jerusalem. He says, you're talking about this kingdom of God. There's more to that than going to Jerusalem for the Passover. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This man who comes to Jesus is a committed man. But perhaps he's one of those people who's committed to being committed. What I mean is maybe he's an idealist. One of these people who thinks, if, if, you know, if we just had the right idea. And he's attracted to Jesus' teaching. He's struck by Jesus' teaching. He's convinced that Jesus is right, that Jesus is on to something, and he's ready to take the plunge and make the commitment. And he tells Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus senses something about this man. That this man is attracted to Jesus' teaching, but he doesn't recognize the cost of discipleship. He's committed to an idea. He's committed to Jesus' teachings, but he doesn't understand the demands that Jesus places. Because if you enter the kingdom of God, there are demands on you. Maybe he's one of those idealists who has, has his life all planned out. He pictures all, of his, all the steps that he's going to take in his life. And what he really needs is an idea to commit to, to give it meaning. As I think of many of us here in this room that I know about, I think, I think some of us when we were younger were like that. And I know some of us were rebels without a cause. Some of us were rebels without a clue. But many of us had a plan for our life and, and we just had a desire to find one idea or one thing to commit to. And when we did that, then, then that would give meaning to our lives. It might be an ethical idea or an ethical principle or a new doctrine of some sort, maybe a religious doctrine, a political doctrine, social doctrine, economic doctrine. But, but all I need is something to commit to. And then this perfect life I have planned out for myself, I'll have it all. But the kingdom of God is not primarily an idea. The kingdom of God is built on a person, a person who shakes things up. And I think that is what lies behind Jesus' answer. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is not the career path that most people choose. Most people in their youth don't say, yeah, I'd kind of like that. Why does Jesus have nowhere to lay his head? Because he's on the move. He's avoiding those who want to kill him. He's laying low. He's on the run. He's hiding out. There's already been one attempt on his life. When he went back to Nazareth, the people in his hometown tried to throw him off a cliff. And here and there, there are religious leaders who are already planning his death. Not all of them, they haven't united yet, but here and there, there are those who are beginning to say, this guy is dangerous. It's on this same trip from Galilee to Jerusalem that John's gospel provides some detail. It's on this very trip that a message comes from Mary, Martha and Mary, and they say, Lazarus is ill. And then comes the message, Lazarus is dead. 
And you may know the Lazarus story. It ends with Jesus going and raising Lazarus from the dead. Keep reading that chapter, location, location, location. That's when the rulers gather and they say, Jesus is the Messiah. The only one who can raise from the dead is the Messiah, but this one's the wrong one. If we back this guy, talks about love and peace, Romans are going to steamroll this guy, and he's going to steamroll us with the rest of them. And Rabbi Gamaliel prophetically says it's better for one man to die than that the entire nation dies. It's on this trip that Jesus is taking that the plan comes together. And that plan is going to involve Judas. Why did, why did the religious leaders, leaders need Judas? Because Jesus, Jesus, Judas knows where Jesus is hiding. Right? Just read the story. They need Judas to tell them where he is. Oh, he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane tonight. Okay. Well, back to the story here. This man is committed to the idea of following Jesus, but not to the reality of following Jesus. And it's like some people who approach Christianity, and they think, well, you know, my, my old behaviors are wrong, so I need some new behaviors. And maybe if I become a Christian, I'll have some new behavior, and that'll fix my problem. Or... They say, well, maybe Christianity has some ideas that explain things better than, than I can explain them myself. And once I get those, act, act, those answers to those questions, then, then my life will be straightened out. Well, y- yeah, there are new behaviors and there are new ideas, but the, Christ, the, but the Christian walk is in a new kingdom with a new king. And you can no longer be your own king and your own savior who just needs a, a tip here and there to figure out what to do next because the kingdom of God demands more than new behavior and new thoughts, but it demands your life. If I give my life to Jesus, what do I get back? Paul tells us, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. How many times does Jesus say, this in different words, but these very words. At one point, if you, if, you, if you keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, you're going to gain it. Why? Because what Jesus says is, I came to give you life, and that you would have life more abundantly. Trade in the life you have for a life of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. Life more abundantly. Well, the second man comes to Jesus. The first man had volunteered to follow Jesus. Jesus actually invites the second man. Jesus says to him, follow me. But the man says to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let the dead bury the dead. Now, Jesus says lots of harsh things, and that's true. And I never want to sugarcoat when Jesus says harsh things. But this particular harsh thing may not be as harsh as it sounds to our ears at first glance. It's highly unlikely for several rabbinical laws that I'm not going to go into, but it's highly unlikely that this man would have taken this kind of a journey to go to the Passover if his father was deathly ill. And certainly if his father was dead, he would not have been hanging around long enough for Jesus to have talked to him. You have to go back and you have to bury the body very quickly. You can't just hang around. You have to get back very quickly to take care of the body. And um, 
and at first glance, it sounds like the man is saying to Jesus, my father just dropped dead of a heart attack, and I've got to go to his funeral. But I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. When the man says, let me, let me bury my father, I think what he means is, let me hang around with my dad until my dad dies so I can get the inheritance. If I leave the family business, dad's going to be ticked off. Let me go back home, work in the family business. Dad's getting kind of old, and, and, and when, when he goes, then, then, then I'll come and follow you. Because if I leave the family business, he's going to disown me. That might not sound very persuasive at first. But I remind you, this is a story from the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke's Gospel, Jesus talks more about money than anything else. Luke is almost obsessed with Jesus' teachings on money, and especially inheritance. And I think once we know that Luke is so... Maybe telling us an awful lot about Luke's own family background, I don't know. But it comes over and over again to this idea of inheritance. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. What he means is if you go back, you'll die. You'll be dead. If you turn around and walk back home to make sure you get your inheritance, you'll be spiritually dead. If you trust in your inheritance, you'll die. If you trust in your plans, you'll die. A third man comes to Jesus. This man volunteers to follow Jesus. The first man was volunteered. The second man was invited. The third man volunteers. But he takes a similar approach to the second man, a similar response. The third man says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, where is his home? Back in Galilee. Are you following the story? He says, I'll, I'll leave you here. Okay, I'm just going to go home and make sure that everything is right with mom and dad and that they, they approve, and then I'll say goodbye to them, and then I'll catch up with you later down the road. That's what the man is saying. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The man says, let me go back home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this may be an archaic reference for most of us. Most of us probably haven't plowed with a horse or a mule or an ox or even a tractor. But if you're plowing by hand with a tractor, tractors today are on the, on, they're crazy. They're connected to the internet and reading for 5G. It comes to the you know, real-time GPS tracking. It's weird. But um, back in the old days, you got on a tractor, or you, or you had a plow and a horse. Um, well, you have to keep, you can't keep your eye on a point where you're heading, or else you'll get off track. That may be archaic, an archaic reference for some of us. Think of it this way. Um, think about pushing a, lawn, uh, a push mower in your lawn. When I was a little kid, and I finally got big enough that I could push the lawn mower, my dad let me mow the grass. I must have been crushing to him. But he let me mow it. And he taught me what to do. He said, you, you, you go this way, and then when you come back around, then you line up the tire on that side with the cut line of where you cut before, and then that'll keep you straight. And you keep walking, and you keep that straight. But I learned pretty fast that if you're doing that and you keep looking backward, 
you're going to discover that you're all over the place because you got to keep the eye on the wheel or you got to keep the eye on the tree that you're aiming at or whatever when you're plowing because if you keep looking back you're not fit for the kingdom of God keep looking back maybe looking back at all those plans plans that were made that got shaken up all of them good things but sometimes people hold on to them and keep looking back it's like um, it's like Frankenstein's monster in Mary Shelley's novel Dr. Frankenstein gets all these dead body parts and puts them together and then a jolt of electricity from outside comes and animates the body but the monster's never happy why? because he's got full of dead parts I think some people might, might come carrying all the dead parts and then they expect God to give them a jolt of electricity and then, and then they'll be happy or they'll be fulfilled but they're carrying around those old idols, those old dead parts. If you keep looking back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. I'm going to close with this insight, not even much of a challenge, just an insight that I'd like you to think about. Jesus speaks fairly harshly to these three men. But there's no indication here in the text that any of these three men left Jesus. There's no indication here like there is with the story of the rich young ruler of turning around and going away sad. There's no indication at all that any of these three left Jesus. Jesus corrects them. He corrects them even harshly. But he doesn't reject them. And I take comfort in that. That Jesus corrects these men, but he doesn't reject them. In Jesus' name, amen.